Due to that pandemic, I feel like wages lost have been about, honestly, $30,000 plus for the year. In 2020, I lost about $20,000 in income and credit card debt. I have, in the last year, lost about $40,000 in income just in 2020. And then I also had to liquidate about $10,000 in retirement and savings that I was really not looking forward to tapping into, but I didn't have another choice. Didn't have another choice. These words have been uttered so many times by moms and so many other people in the past year. It almost goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, (laughs) that problems like lack of paid leave and affordable childcare only got worse over the last year, especially for those living on the edge financially. But also, plenty of people who felt they were solidly in the middle class have been faced with really difficult financial circumstances, especially due to meager unemployment benefits. So, yeah, I've really been thinking about that. And I feel like the social safety net in this country is like one of those tiny toys that you give a toddler to, like, catch tadpoles. But we want people to use that to fend off sharks. (laughs) That is America (laughs) for you. This is The Double Shift, the show that challenges the status quo of motherhood in America. And I'm your host, Katherine Goldstein. And I'm your co-host, Angela Garbez. This episode is the second in a series we are doing on the true cost of the pandemic for mothers. It's part of a partnership between The Double Shift, The Guardian, and the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. And today you'll meet three women who are navigating huge financial upheaval caused by the pandemic. So, uh, yes, my name is Andrea Rimes. I am a photographer and a flight attendant. I'm 27 years old, and I am 36 weeks pregnant. That's Andrea speaking to me earlier this year. But let's go back to the beginning of Andrea's pandemic story. In early 2020, things were looking good for her. She was still relatively new as a flight attendant, but she'd just gotten her line. That's airline industry talk for getting a bump in status. It meant she had a lot more control over her flight schedule, along with more money. Andrea planned to use that income increase to invest more time and money into her photography business. Then the pandemic hit. I flew from Indy to Chicago, and then I think I did a Chicago to Charlotte or Chicago to Philly. I was taking pictures around the Borden areas, you know, seeing all the food places closed and Coach in Philly wasn't open. I've never not walked in Coach in Philly when I walked through there. (laughs) So it was definitely then while I'm walking through the biggest hubs in the east coast of the U.S. and it's seeing a ghost town. I'm operating flights with 10 people consistently. Honestly, I operated a flight with one person and I was just like, I don't know why I'm here. So, like, do you remember at what point or do you remember a news article or seeing something on the news where you're like, I think I should start wearing masks to work? 
It was a conversation with another flight attendant. She came on board and she had the mask, the double mask. One was cute, one was hospital, you know, great. And she had the gloves. Oh, girl, you need to wear these gloves. What are you doing? Have you sanitized your area yet? Don't come in my area. That's your area? This is my area? <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. And then she she kind of doubled back. She was like, I realized that was a little abrasive. Hi, I'm X, Y, and Z. And this is what I've been researching. And this is how I feel like we should operate this flight. So in the early days of the pandemic, a lot of air travel stopped. But her airline didn't shut down completely. Andrea wasn't working much, though, which meant she wasn't getting paid. In April and May, she got called in to fly four times total. And then over the summer, she found out she was pregnant. She jokes it happened because she and her boyfriend, who she lives with, were both home a lot, staring at each other with nothing else to do. (laughs) I mean, I can think of worse pandemic hobbies. (laughs) So Andrea got called into fly more often during the summer, but the job was a lot harder. Some people were freaking out about spacing on planes, and others were finding loopholes with COVID safety protocols, like keeping their masks around their chins and claiming they were eating for the whole flight. But it wasn't just dealing with high-maintenance passengers or disrespect that got to Andrea. A violent, racist incident with a white male passenger made her fear for her safety especially as a petite, pregnant Black woman. We go through the cabin. We make multiple announcements saying uh, we're going to require that masks stay up for X, Y, and Z. And he was a person that didn't feel like he needed to listen. He needed to wear the mask. So I told him to put his mask up twice. And then the person in the front told him, sorry, we can't take off or we can't X, Y, and Z until you put your mask up. And then he started you know, mouthing off to her. And then when we came through again to do our final walkthrough, I came at Tim's like, sir, I, I'm sorry, I have to ask you again. And he, yeah, 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 yeah. I shouldn't have to listen to a five foot, the black woman, da, 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 da. like, do you know who I, I don't know who he was. Do you know who I am? And I started seeing other people get up and realize, and he jumped up and other people were holding him back. Wow. Um, That was Andrea's last flight. So some might say Andrea chose to stop flying. And so often we frame what is happening to mothers in the workplace right now as, quote, choices. Right. And you and I take issue with that. It's really not much of a choice. Right. And I think we just have to really lay out what a false choice it is, because what kind of choice is it between dealing with racist, violent, and belligerent passengers while you are pregnant or having to go on unpaid leave, which is what Andrea decided to do. So with no steady income in sight, she applied for food stamps and unemployment. This was the first time since she was 16 that she hadn't had a steady job. So she decided to invest more of her time in trying to grow her photography business. But The hardships of the pandemic have actually given her a sense of resilience. I think it's put a positive spin on what I know I can do now. I feel like this is probably the lowest of the low I probably would have ever been in and will ever be in. So it's only up from here. If you can 
Put food on the table. You can work your budget if you can keep in mind your finances and still do what you're passionate about and grow a healthy child. During this time, you can do anything. Quick update from Andrea. Andrea and her boyfriend welcomed their baby boy Taj on February 21st. They are all healthy and doing well. Andrea isn't sure about her exact plans for returning to being a flight attendant, but she does hope to continue with her photography business once she's ready to return to work. So one of my personal obsessions that I think so many families should consider is co-housing. Our episode, Don't Call Me Mom, Call Me Ted, was set in a co-housing community, and we've also talked about it in other episodes. With its common spaces and strong community, it offers kids freedom and independence to roam and connect with nature that is honestly hard to find these days, all with loving neighbors invested in your kids' lives. Right now, there's an opportunity to actually get in on a great community that's about to start construction. Co-housing ABQ owns four acres of land along the beautiful Rio Grande, just minutes from downtown Albuquerque. The community already has 12 kids and many aunties and grandparents, and they've supported one another through COVID and before, creating a culture of trust, fun, and care. All they need to be complete is you. Go to cohousingabq.org slash the double shift to check out their website and sign up for an info session. Honestly, browsing this website, this place looks really dreamy, and I'm not going to lie, it kind of makes me want to pick up and move to Albuquerque. So go check it out and learn more about how Cohousing ABQ can become your village. That's cohousingabq.org slash the double shift. It's also linked in our show notes. Hey, Double Shifters, it's Catherine. I am so glad you're enjoying our rich back catalog of episodes. And as you may know, we aren't putting out new episodes right now, but we're doing some really cool work we want you to know about. And we'd like to stay in touch with you. Please sign up for our weekly newsletter, which is full of great storytelling and ideas about the forces that shape family life in America. To sign up, go to thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. Also, we have a robust member community that's full of amazing moms from all over the world with Zoom hangouts on super interesting topics like creativity and challenging the status quo at work. We're building more and more ways for you all to get to know and support each other. That's just so important right now. We're also planning some great member benefits like audio newsletters. So if you particularly like connecting with us through listening, it's a great way to keep double shift thinking in your ears and in your life. Also, we are a scrappy small business and your support helps us do what we do. Thoughtful journalism that tells important stories and challenges the status quo of motherhood and beyond. To become a member, go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. So remember, sign up for our free newsletter so we can stay in touch with you. It's thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. And consider becoming a member. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. Membership starts at $5 a month. Thanks. 
Kaliana Munoz is a longtime listener to The Double Shift, and she responded to a call-out we did on Instagram. Like Andrea, she started 2020 feeling really hopeful about her career. Kaliana was a VIP host at a performance venue. I live in New Orleans, so Mardi Gras was in February, and I worked at the music venue, so I'd work concerts, and we'd have drag brunches, and that was great. And I was really looking forward to my career. Kaliana had been working at the performance venue for a year. She was supporting herself and her four-year-old daughter, who she had during college when she was 20. Kaliana was expecting to earn about $25,000 in 2020, between that job and other side gigs. So then came mid-March. <laughs> the part of the story that comes every time then came in March, and it was a big performance venue, like a big capacity place. It shut down completely. And so then one of her side gigs had been as a bartender at a gentleman's club. So when that main job stopped due to COVID, she decided that maybe it was time to try being a dancer there. And her first two nights were in March, like right before everything got shut down, mm -hmm. and she made a bunch of money, $800 total. Mm -hmm. Then the club closed for a while due to COVID, and then when it reopened, there were a bunch of restrictions in place, including that had to close early at 11 p.m. And so now Kaliana's occasional dancer shifts only made like 100 or 150 a night, and it was just not a job she was super into. The area where we live sometimes isn't as COVID safe as you want. So you're kind of like worried about everything. And it's also just like the mental stress of like, would I be doing this if there wasn't a pandemic? And like, why is this happening right now? Mm. Nothing wrong with it. It was just more like circumstantial. And like, I just didn't feel good. Like it didn't feel like it was my decision. I felt like I had to do it. Hmm, that's interesting. And was your hesitation really about COVID safety? I'm trying to imagine, like, are people in a gentleman's club, like, are the dancers wearing masks? Like, are the patrons wearing masks? Like, explain to me what it's like in a gentleman's club during a pandemic. So, yes, I, you know, we had to wear masks and we had to do that and we had to enforce that. But a lot of people did not want to enforce that. So they're standing next to me, you know, with out a mask on, smoking a cigarette, and I'm standing there with a mask on, like, okay. <laughs> so it was kind of situations like that. Hmm. And also you're there to, like, make tips. So it's not, like, really the place where you want to have, like, a public health discussion with someone. Uh, yes, because then it quickly, quickly goes to politics. And, I mean, I live in Louisiana, so it gets, it gets rough real fast. And you start talking about politics. Trying to talk about politics during a pandemic in a gentleman's club sounds like a really quite, a, like a lot of minefields there. <laughs> <laughs> a lot. Yeah. You know, I think about how in so many work settings throughout our lives, Many of us women have had to navigate tricky conversations like this with men. It was never okay, but in the before times, it was just, you know, to get through a workday or a moment, not when, you know, making ends meet during a pandemic, like when that kind of stuff is on the line. Kaliana and Andrea both have to figure out how to placate asshole men who don't want to wear their masks. You know, they're putting their bodies and safety on the line just so they can get by. 
You know, this is something pretty much all women have to face in some way, right? But it's especially demeaning as a woman of color. You already know you're seen as less than, and you also know that you run the risk of seeming, you know, angry and like this sort of stereotypical idea of an angry woman of color. Um, and also, frankly, of someone getting violent with you. Right. I think this situation is so messed up because, you know, we've all seen these viral videos of people like losing their minds over having to wear masks. But I I think that there's a sort of steady daily stress of these situations that I just feel like there's a reality of service sector work and this like customer is always right stuff. Mm -hmm. And how much worse that is right now during the pandemic that I really think we need to be talking about more. Yeah. You know, like so many people who've grappled with job loss during the pandemic, you know, if they're getting by at all, it's usually due to the help of family and friends. Kaliana has a big extended family in New Orleans, and her ex and his family are super involved with raising her daughter. She also doesn't pay rent because she lives in a home that is paid off and that was passed down to her by a family member. But she still has to cover all the bills associated with ownership. And her bills went up a lot because she was home all the time. Right. Like, if you're home all day during the summer in New Orleans, like, your electricity bill is going to be high. Mm -hmm. So, Kalyana applied for deferral programs for car payments, car insurance, her electric water gas bills. She, like, put everything on payment plans, which gave her the option to pay things off over time. And although she had started 2020 without any credit card debt, she racked up a lot of debt buying food. And there were so many things— that she had to apply for and, like, so much paperwork and logistics, like, that she didn't even realize until later that she could have applied for food stamps. Oh, my God. Like, to me, that's, you're doing everything you're supposed to be doing. You know, you're asking for help. You're applying for help, which isn't the easiest thing. And then you just forget a basic thing because there's so many things to keep track of. Right, and also, That just yeah, breaks my heart. I know, and also it's like she hadn't ever needed to rely on food stamps. Like, and so she didn't, it wasn't like top of mind for her. Like, oh, I qualify mm-hmm. for food stamps. So, so Kaliana was getting $91 after taxes a week from state unemployment benefits. And she also says the federal stimulus check she got at the start of the pandemic was a huge help. And then she was also really relying on the $600 weekly federal unemployment benefits. But then the government let those benefits expire on July 31st. It was a moment of panic. And I, you know, I really, I really thought that the government, they were going to extend it. Like I had full faith. I was like, there's no way that they're going to not extend it. Like they, and that was my fault for having confidence that they would do that because I really felt it once it happened. I was like, wow, I only have this 91 a week. And I did save some money, but it's really hard trying to manage all those expenses. And then it's also, you know, my house is paid off, but I still owe property taxes and homeowners insurance at the end of the year. So that's almost $4,000 that I have to come up with. And I was thinking about that, like, oh my gosh. Kaliana did manage to get a job with the census in August. But by the end of October, that job was ending and things were getting really bad financially. Right. And given that it felt like there was just no chance she was going back to work anytime soon at that performance venue, 
she started to rethink her dream of building a career in the music industry. Because it's like, what industry? Like, the, the, the industry had no, was not on the horizon of coming back at all. So yeah. she scoured job listings and applied for a full-time office job she found on LinkedIn. And she's now working as a clerk in international shipping. I remember a week or two after starting my new job, driving home on the way to pick up my daughter, listening to a podcast, and they were announcing the millions of people still unemployed due to the pandemic. And it was emotional to hear that because I was one of the unemployed and I just got this job while millions of people are unemployed and it felt surreal to be able to have this opportunity amidst all of this uncertainty. Kaliana is really happy about the stability, regular hours, and that she's getting benefits. She now makes $39,000 a year, significantly more than she was making before the pandemic. So one thing I think is really meaningful about Kaliana's story is that even though she had a really tough year, it feels like there's like a glimmer of hope that she was able to pull through it and get this higher paying job. You know, unfortunately, this seems like this is more the exception rather than the rule, but I am just really, really relieved for her and her daughter. Yeah, I think it's important to celebrate that she made it through. Yeah. But equally important to remember that she just as easily could not have. Yep. Right? I mean, I think about our conversation last season with Mia Birdsong. Yes. How there's like this danger in holding up a story and saying, see, if Kaliana can do it, anyone can do it. But, you know, the truth is so many people who work hard still struggle. Right. And not getting to a place like Kaliana isn't their fault. Right. <laughs> it's the fault of a system that makes it so hard to get by, let alone to get ahead. We'll be right back with a story from a mom who was running for Congress to make the world better for everyone when her super busy life away from home came to a halt. My name is Elisa Cardnell, and I'm 34 years old. I live in Houston, Texas, with my 10-year-old daughter. Elisa is a single mom and a Navy vet, and was a 2020 congressional candidate. Before she ran for office, she was a full-time teacher, and she made around $60,000 a year. She also got some disability payments and her health care through the VA. While she was running for Congress, she was able to draw a salary from campaign contributions and she was one of the first campaigns in the country to hire a nanny as part of her campaign staff. When 2020 started, I was in the midst of a congressional campaign. I was running for U.S. Congress in Texas 02 against Dan Crenshaw. How many of you think every student deserves to be safe at school? Yeah, How many of you think health care is a human right? How many of you think there's too much money in politics? Me too. 
My name's Elisa Cardinal. I used to hunt submarines in the Persian Gulf, and now I'm after Dan Crenshaw's seat. That's a clip of Elisa on the campaign trail from when she was running in the Democratic primary. She made it to the runoff, but her primary opponent was better funded, and Elisa didn't think she could fundraise enough to have the campaign she wanted. So she decided to end the campaign. We announced our decision on March 9th, which was a Monday. And by that Friday, Houston's school district was working from home. And so that starting that Friday, I was a stay-at-home mom with my kid doing virtual school for the rest of third grade. So my income stopped. And then I had to apply for unemployment. I looked for jobs, put out applications, didn't even ever get a call back on anything in the spring. So it took me, I think it was in late April, I finally got on unemployment because in Texas, the website could not handle the overwhelming number of people applying to it every day. So, and the phone lines, no one even picked up. They were so overwhelmed. You know, at least I had the VA income and I had a little bit still left in savings, but I, I tapped out my mutual fund that I had. I had a little bit of an, a Roth IRA and I pulled every penny I could to make it through those couple of months. Um, so once unemployment kicked in, the federal benefit was, was added on that, the, the $600 a week. And while that was part of it, I was making just enough that the take-home was approximately what I had been making as a teacher and on the campaign trail. And unfortunately, when that $600 a week extra benefit went away, when the federal government let it lapse over the summer, I didn't have enough of a safety net to keep paying my mortgage. Luckily, because it was a VA loan, my mortgage is on a forbearance now um, until whenever I can make enough money again to pay it off. So in case you didn't know, I didn't, uh, mortgage forbearance is basically when you and the mortgage company agree that you can reduce your payments or delay paying your mortgage for a certain amount of time. So it's also really important to note here that Elisa has more access to government-funded social safety nets than most people do, you know, because she is a veteran. So mm -hmm. she gets a disability payment. She has a government-backed mortgage loan that let her do this forbearance as part of a COVID hardship relief program. And her health insurance is provided by the VA. But still, with all of that, it wasn't enough to offset the financial realities of COVID. I mean, my bank account went pretty close to zero for a, a hot minute, um, and I can't remember what month it was. They've all blurred together. But um, I had to go to a friend and say, hey, I'm getting a payment from my one of my jobs that I'm doing. Um, I'm getting a payment, but I have to wait for the check to come. So it's going to take a couple of days, and I need money now. Can you loan me some money? And so luckily, I had a friend who was able to say, you need $1,000 just to pay bills. Like, here, I'll Venmo you. I was able to pay the bills that were due in the next couple of days. And then within a week, I had the payment I was expecting, and I was able to repay it. But that was really embarrassing to, to have to ask for help like that from, I mean, it was a very good friend, but it's still, it's still difficult. How did, as someone who obviously has accomplished a lot, you were in the Navy, you ran for Congress. I mean, obviously that takes a lot of ambition. What was it like to 
sort of have to turn to someone in, in that moment and say that you couldn't do this on your own? Um, it's humbling. I was financially independent from the time I was 17 and left for college. So to have to get a loan, even though it was very short term, very quick, I knew I had money coming in to pay it in the next few days. It, it was humbling and it was, it was tough to ask for help. I'm not someone who likes to do that. So I treated it as, look, this is what I have to do to, to buy groceries this week for me and my kid you know, and, and make sure I pay the electric bill. So it was, it, I tried to look at the practical side of it, but it, it was hard to realize that I was still one of the lucky ones, that there were a lot of people worse off than me. Has it been particularly uh, interesting or, or insightful for you to have just finished a run for Congress and then sort of personally experience like all the different nuances of how these policies affect people like the unemployment insurance or, you know, policies about mortgages like that is actually impacted by (laughs) our elected representatives, which you were trying to be. It it was it was bittersweet to go through these experiences knowing that if I were still on the campaign trail, that this would be a story that would be extremely compelling to be able to share with the world, um, to let people know that there were folks running for Congress who understood them, who walked a day in their shoes. So it was it was always hard. So I was like, man, if I was in it, <laughs> I could tell this story. Alisa is now the executive director of Moms in Office, a political action committee to help get more moms into elected office. She doesn't draw an official salary from it, but she has recently started her own political consulting firm to help support working class candidates. So Angela, what did you think of Alisa's story? Ugh, honestly, I'm so bummed that she didn't make it past the primary. Right. <laughs> like, I feel like we need people with lived experiences like Elisa's to represent us. People, you know, people feel like their representatives don't understand what we're going through. And it's true. Yeah. You know, I think about how Senator Tammy Duckworth was the first senator to give birth while in office. Right. And that was just in 2018. Yes. 2018. Very recent history. (laughs) (laughs) So mothers are definitely lacking in political representation and power. And you see that in what has been prioritized or not prioritized in our policy making. For sure. So through the process of reporting these stories, it was so predictable. When the unemployment, the federal unemployment lapsed, every time I was speaking to people about this, like, I knew as soon as they said, and then the federal unemployment lapsed, like that's when the story got really, really, really bad. Mm. I think, though, that one of my takeaways from all of these stories is that despite everything these women have been through, I did hear optimism from them, you know, about the future. Well, I think that's because so many mothers can't afford to not be optimistic. You know, like, otherwise, what's the point? Right. (laughs) How do you even keep going? (laughs) It reminds me of something that the abolitionist Mariam Kaba said, which is that hope is a discipline. Mm. And I love that. You know, it's like when you look at it that way, hope or optimism definitely shouldn't stop us from saying 
this is not okay. Right. Like full It's stop. not okay f- yeah. for our government to abandon people like this. In fact, it makes it even more crucial, like not only that we name it, but that we imagine and push for another way. And to me, this is what mothering is all about, right? right? We have power as mothers and caregivers to raise the next generation with a new kind of consciousness around these issues. You know, I think of myself as actively raising people who, if they're ever in a position to make these decisions, would never force people to choose between a paycheck and their health. Hmm. And, you know, like these things may seem small, you know, in our daily lives, which Mostly we spend, like, picking food up off the floor, right? Right. Um, but, like, in our homes, like, it, this is where things like that start. I have to believe that. And I have to believe that with many of us doing things like this, you know, shifting things for our children, it will make a difference. Yeah. That gives me some optimism, too. And I, and I know that we both really believe in urgent change now, but we also know that, you know, we're in this for the long game. and that we may be able to influence ideas about how much we need each other, but also how we need our government to come through for us. Yeah. If you would like to see a written version of these stories, along with photos of Andrea and Kaliana, we have linked to my written piece about them in The Guardian. Be sure to check out your show notes and head over to our Instagram at The Double Shift for more pictures and great conversation too. Thank you so much to all of you who have become members in the last few weeks. We are so excited and grateful for your support. Don't forget, members get ad-free content and episodes every week instead of every other week. And next week for our members, inspired by the candid sharing that our guests have done about what the pandemic has cost them, Angela and I are going to get real about what the pandemic has cost us in concrete dollar amounts. And in two weeks, we'll be back with more Money Talk. Can't stop, won't stop talking about money. We're going to get real about what it takes to run a mission-driven enterprise. During a time of massive economic uncertainty, That enterprise being this very podcast, The Double Shift. You won't want to miss it. The Double Shift is created and hosted by me, Katherine Goldstein. Our co-host is Angela Garbez. Our senior producer is Rachel McCarthy. We are also produced by Asal Asanipur. Our editor is Anita Rao. Our research assistant is Jada Hester. Music is by Travis Morrison and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme song is by Palehound. Our mixer is Corey Shuffle. Special thanks to Elisa Cardinal's Congressional Campaign for Use of Audio. We are funded in part by the generous support of the Ford Foundation and you, our members. We can't do this without you. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. We are independently produced and distributed. Thanks for being part of The Double Shift. <laughs>